0: Welcome to the podcast ministry of Grace Anglican Church in Grove City, Pennsylvania, proclaiming the historic faith and the uncompromising grace of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, check out our website, graceanglicanonline.com. St. Peter's Anglican down in Butler this morning, and one lovely lady came to me afterward and said, I loved your sermon, but long. I think I went 35 minutes, so for you guys, that's nothing. But um, So if this sermon does manage to be less than 30 minutes, you can thank this lady this morning who shamed me. Um, if it's longer than 30 minutes, I'm sorry, but I'll try to go less distance than Ethan does. Um, <laughs> we are in Romans chapter 6, the lesson uh, from, from the reading tonight. Uh, I'm going to... Back up here in a moment. I'm actually going to start in Romans chapter 5 verses 20 and 21. The lectionary skips those verses, and I actually think they're very important transition verses. So we'll get to that, but if you have a Bible and you can open up to it, that would be, that would be great. But before we get there, I would like you to imagine for a moment that you uh, have moved to a new country. And, and the culture in that new country is, is very different. I lived in Texas for five years, not quite a new country, but very different. Uh, most Texans think that the Garden of Eden was in Texas and that the world falls off at the Texas border. So there were, there were a lot of cultural things that I had to learn. But if you're living in a new country, maybe they ride on the opposite side of the road. Maybe they have a whole lot of these like roundabout things when you drive, which are actually pretty awesome and are just now finding their way to PA. Where have these been all our lives? I like these. Uh, maybe the language is a little different. Maybe they take naps in the afternoon. That would be okay. right? There are about a million ways, if you're a citizen of a new country... There are about a million ways that you're going to insult them and about a million ways that you're going to be insulted. And when you are the citizen of a new country, it's not as if you just move in and suddenly know everything about that place. It takes some time to understand what it means to be a resident and a citizen of a new country. Tonight in Romans chapter 6, Paul is talking about uh, two dominions. The dominion of sin and death, and the dominion of Christ and grace. And he is making an argument in this passage that the uh, Christians, his readers, are in fact new citizens of a new dominion, and they need to start learning to live in that new place. But he starts this discussion back in Romans chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. He makes an actually a very startling assertion. He says... Um, in in verses uh, 20 and 21. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now back in Romans chapter 5, he has concluded a discussion or uh, a significant portion of the discussion about the gospel, about how one becomes a Christian. And just before verse 20 of Romans 5, uh, he, he lays out an argument for two different trajectories. There's the trajectory of Adam that leads to death, and there's the trajectory of Christ that leads to life, and that we are trapped, these aren't Paul's words, these are my paraphrase, we are trapped in Adam, in this gravitational pull of Adam's sin. And the only way to get out of that gravitational trajectory is to have a force from the outside grab us out of it and send us off in a new direction. And he has made the argument to the Romans that they are in Christ and they have been taken off of the old trajectory and they have been put surely and confidently on this new pathway in Christ and that they are secure not because of the law but because of God's grace. And then he says, in in verses 20 and 21, he says something really kind of shocking, okay? He says that the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now, back in Romans 5, chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 13, Paul has already said that sin had existed before the law. Sin existed from the fall of man before the law ever came to be. And what the law has done is it's shown a light on man's sin. It's told us what sin is. But what he says in verse 20 is not only does the law shine light on sin, the law makes sin worse. Where the law, uh, where the, when the law came, the trespass increased. Now, I don't know if you saw this this week. I saw it on Facebook. It's obviously true because it was on Facebook. But some guy in Arkansas decided to run over a granite Ten Commandments monument with his car. This thing was like six feet tall. And he ran into it and knocked it over and completely smashed it. And what was funny is the, officer, the only thing the officer writing the report said was it was surprising how little damage was actually on the car. He smashed this thing. Now, apparently this is the second time that this guy has smashed this particular monument. He did not get caught the first time. Here is what is amazing to me. Not so much that this guy smashed a monument. But when you read the comment threads of when people are commenting on this story, there were a whole lot of people saying that he was a hero. You see, I I don't really have a, a, a thing about monuments on public property, whatever. That's not my point. My point is this. Wherever the law of God is pronounced, it actually brings out the worst in people because we have these dark and rebellious hearts. And our problem, as Thomas Cranmer is famous for saying, is not that we don't think clearly or not necessarily that our wills are broken, though they both are. It's that our hearts are black. What the heart desires, the will chooses... And the mind justifies. Now, we use that line a lot in this church. That is like one of our mantras, remember it. It's also Anglican. I read somewhere this week that some guy claimed that Melanchthon said it. Now, I'm sorry to my Lutheran friends. You've got Luther and you've got good quotes, but that one belongs to us, all right? That's ours. What the heart wants, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. And so the presence of the law shines a light on sin, and actually inflames our own rebellion. It makes us actually want to to run the other way. And the problem is our affections. The problem is our affections. And he has just said, Paul, in Romans 5 and, and, and previously, that we are saved only by grace. And the point that Paul is making when he talks about this is that if you want to change the way a person lives... You have to first help them change their affections. You have to cause them to fall in love with something else. Uh, It's grace. You know, rich people, let's take a rich man as an example. He works really hard. He earns millions of dollars. He marries a wife who's 25 years younger than him. She suddenly becomes a millionaire, not because she earned it, but because she married into the family. That is grace. You've earned salvation because you married into the family and you married into an inheritance that somebody else earned for you. When Beth and I were first married, she had $2,400 in the bank. I had $200 in the bank. I married up. That, and you know what? Not much has changed. So we're saved by grace. This is the larger point of what Paul has been trying to say up to this point. And he's pointing to the fact that our problems are our affections and that, we're, and that we need our affections to be changed. And so he says this inflammatory thing about the gospel, or excuse me, about the law, that the law actually increases the trespass. It's the sort of thing that actually got Jesus in trouble. And it's the sort of thing that got Paul in trouble. You see, because what Paul does next as he begins Romans chapter 6 is he anticipates an accusation he anticipates the accusation of antinomianism. Now, antinomianism, it's a big word. I remember the first time someone accused me of it, I had no idea what they were talking about. Um, Antinomianism is the belief that in this sort of hyper-grace, so that what you do doesn't matter, that God's law no longer has any application to you. And it has been said by many preachers, including the great Martin Lloyd-Jones, that if any preacher is preaching the gospel appropriately, at some point somebody's probably going to accuse him of antinomianism. It happens. So Paul is anticipating this accusation. He's anticipating that when you say you're saved by grace alone and there's nothing you have to do to earn it, that somebody's going to accuse him of being an antinomian. So he starts in chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So here's the logic. If grace is a good thing, and sin, a bad thing, gives us more of this grace good thing, then we should just sin more to get more good stuff. Right? That's the logic. And guess what Paul didn't do? Paul didn't say, well darn, I didn't think of that. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't, like, back off. He said, no, may it never be. And he goes into this long explanation that instead of backing off the gospel, he actually goes deeper into the gospel. He actually digs down deeper and says, the real question is, not that you have too much grace, but that you have too little, and that you have not adequately understood What it is that grace is doing for you. And so let me explain it. And he goes a little bit deeper. First, before we look at that, we have to understand a couple of things. First, uh, that our affections, our affections are broken. Our hearts are black. And because our affections are broken, we often settle for too many simple things. Uh, C.S. Lewis is famous for saying that it isn't that we desire too much, it's that we desire too little. Now, I imagine most of us in our Christian life, at least speaking for myself, you know what I really want out of my Christian life? I want to be left alone. I do. I've been in beach mode for like four weeks. Like, I want to go to the beach. And I want to be left alone. And I don't want any problems, and I just want to go to church, and I want everything to be fine. And we'll kind of patch up and have a pretty decent little life. Maybe you've known a person like this. Maybe you've known a person who they've got the, the, the house and they've got the car and they've got the good kids and they've got a job they like and everything's kind of working out and they go to church to be religious just so to be a well-rounded person because, you know, well-rounded people, they go to church and they think spiritual thoughts. And so they go to church to be a well-rounded person. When we view grace in that way, The problem is is that we have not actually grasped what grace is trying to accomplish in our lives. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says this, Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You know that those jobs need doing and so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably, and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace, and he intends to come and live in it himself. You see, we're tempted to abuse grace, uh, not because we have too much of it, but because we actually have too little of it. Because we haven't really grasped the magnitude of what Christ is going to do in our life. And sometimes we use grace as an excuse to sin, don't we? How many times have you done something knowing full well that it was sinful and you thought to yourself, I'll ask for forgiveness later? I've heard this story many, many times. Something along these lines. A pastor that I once read uh, had a man come to him and say, Pastor, I'm, I'm thinking about cheating on my wife. And I, I just want to know, like, will God forgive me? And the pastor said to him, you're asking entirely the wrong question." you need to ask yourself if you understand salvation at all. Like you're asking the wrong question. And so when someone says to us, uh, the temptation if we preach too much grace is that someone will be led to sin, the answer is no. We haven't given them enough grace if they haven't understood that grace is actually taking them away from sin. Uh, I have a friend who did in fact cheat on his wife and said to me after the fact, oh, don't worry, God and I are good. I apologized, thinking, yeah, I think your soul's in trouble. Uh, A few years ago, uh, and I don't know, remember where this happened, you may recall it, there was a a workout gym somewhere, and a guy walked in with a gun and shot several people, and afterwards said that he was angry at some people there, and he knew he could do it because God would forgive him. Um, Those are somewhat extreme examples, but we use these kind of excuses all the time. And the problem, of course, is that our expectations are way too low. And we've never really grasped what grace is actually accomplishing in our lives. And so Paul goes on to tell us a little bit about what grace is actually doing. He says that the Christian is dead to sin and alive to God. Sin there is a noun. It's not an action. It's it's the realm and dominion of sin, this entity that controls us. He says we are dead to sin. Sin. Now, notice that he doesn't say that sin is dead to us. He says we are dead to sin. Uh, When we have been removed from the dominion of sin, it is as if we never existed there. Sin no longer can own us. Now, I don't know why, but every time I read this verse, I am reminded of the Karate Kid Part 2. There's a scene there where you have Daniel. And he goes with Mr. Miyagi to Okinawa, and there's this old rival of uh, Mr. Miyagi's named Sato, and Sato has a nephew or something that's kind of a rebel and he's a troublemaker, and he, of course he's the bully, he's the bad guy that Daniel has to beat up. Like that's the way the Karate Kid went, and 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 at some point, this bad nephew does something to embarrass the family honor. And Uncle Sato looks at him and says, you're dead to me. And he oh, and he runs off. It was great acting. Uh, no, it was horrible acting, but whatever. Um, when someone says, you're dead to me, it means you no longer ex- exist. And when Paul uses that phrase here, it means it is as if you never existed. That as far as the dominion of sin goes, you are dead. It has no authority over you anymore. Imagine that you're that citizen in the new country that we spoke of. And in your old country, it was against the law to drive over 25 miles an hour. Your old country was Grove City, Pennsylvania. (laughs) It's against the law to drive over 25 miles an hour. But in your new country, you can drive whatever speed you want. If you decide in your new country to drive 55 miles an hour, your old country does not have a right to come back and give you a ticket for driving over 25. They have no authority over you because you're no longer in their country. And so we are dead to sin, but we are alive to God. In Christ, in Christ we are not who we were. We are somebody different. St. Augustine, not the town in Florida, the old guy, back in the 500s. Many of you have read Augustine's Confessions. Uh, Augustine was a rather wild young man. He liked the ladies, a lot of them, apparently. After he came to the Lord, he was walking through his old neighborhood, and one of his old girlfriends comes up to him, and she says, Hey, Augie baby, welcome back. Why don't you come, stay with me for a few days? And he politely says, no, thank you. And he turns and he walks away. And she says, Augustine, don't you know me? It's me. And he turns and he says, but it isn't me. I'm not that person anymore. I'm, I'm not who I was. And so in Christ, the Christian is not who you were. You are somebody new and you are no longer a slave to sin. Not only are you not who you were, but you are not where you were. Martin Lloyd-Jones uses a great illustration, that I'm going to steal from him. Imagine that you live in a country where there are two classes of people, the slaves and the masters. And every single master has a right to tell every single slave what to do. And every single slave has to obey no matter what. So if you're walking down the street and a master sees a slave, the master says, I want you down and I want you to clean my shoes right now. And the slave has to do it. And if you don't do it, there is severe and harsh punishment. And then a new king comes into this nation. And he declares that all the slaves are free that there is no longer any boundaries, there are no longer any classifications of people. Everyone is free. But do you know what happens to the people who are indoctrinated as slaves? They still want to act like slaves. Maybe it's fear, maybe it's habit. A master comes up to them and says, I want you to get down on your knees and wipe off my shoes. And they do it, because that's the only thing they've ever known even though it has been declared that it is no longer true. You see, friends, we live in a new... The one who's been baptized lives in a new kingdom, under a new dominion, and you have been declared absolutely and totally free. You no longer have to respond to your old slave master. And yet we still do because we've been conditioned to do it. And so we live in this tension, this tension of declaration of freedom... And yet our own desires to still be slaves. So Paul says, you're asking the wrong question if you're asking, should we continue to sin so that grace may abound? You're asking the wrong question because you don't understand what grace is really doing and you don't understand who and what you really are. You have been freed. You are being transformed. You have been forgiven. And he uses in this passage... The imagery of baptism. Baptism for Paul in this passage becomes a a sort of linchpin that makes his argument stick together. It's the unifying outward physical sign of that inward spiritual grace. And I want to take a few minutes to talk about baptism because Paul sees it as very important. Now, I have a confession to make. When, uh, you know, I I grew up uh, Baptist And when I was coming into Anglicanism, the hardest theological hurdle for me to overcome was the issue of infant baptism. That that was the tough one. The rest of them were not particularly difficult for me. And and I found in my contemplation and reading of Scripture and, and consideration of the matter that infant baptism and adult baptism both carry with them really strong symbols of what baptism is supposed to be. Infant baptism carries with it the symbol... The idea that you're being acted upon. In this chapter, Romans chapter 6, Paul says, when you have been baptized, it's passive. It's something being done to you. And infant baptism carries that uh, symbolism that there's nothing we bring to God. We come to Him as naked babes in need of Him to do everything. And that infant is, is baptized as a helpless child and brought into the family of God. Adult believers' baptism carries really with it well the imagery of being buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in a new life. And in case you're wondering, it is not at all unusual for Anglicans to actually baptize adults and and older children by immersion, like every good Baptist would do. Baptized by immersion, right? Uh, Because it does carry with it that symbolism of death and resurrection. Ethan is fond of saying that at Grace Anglican, we don't sprinkle, we pour (laughs) We pour. We like to get the water around. Mm -hmm. Here's the the thing, though. It seems to me that when we're talking about infant baptism, uh, we run the risk of implying that once we've baptized that child, that's it. They're in, they're done, there's no need for their their own response. And that's that's a false assumption about infant baptism. On the other side of the spectrum, when we baptize uh, adult believers, we run the risk... Of losing the symbolism of helplessness. That somehow that adult is bringing something to the equation. They're bringing their own faith. They're bringing their own expression. They're bringing their own public statement. That they've somehow got themselves to this point where they're going to make this statement. And so we run a risk on the other side of losing the theology that God is the one doing the action. And so for me it's been helpful to take a step back and to stop focusing on the individuals who are being baptized, but to take a much larger look at what's going on when we baptize. When we come together as a body of Christ to baptize any person, child or adult or whomever, we are together making a statement of faith. It is a community event. You've noticed when we baptize someone, the parents on behalf of the child promise to live a godly life and to follow Christ. And we all promise to support them in that. When we baptize an adult, that adult promises to, to put aside evil, to seek to follow Christ. And we all promise to support them in that. Because when we come together to baptize someone, what we are saying is that baptism is an expression of the faith of God's people that in Christ God has come to us. And that in Christ we trust that he has opened up a way out of enslavement. We are saying as a group collectively, no matter what the individual being baptized is saying, we are saying as a group collectively that by faith we are baptizing this person because we believe Christ has opened up a way to salvation. And this outward sign and seal is a physical symbol of that promise. And so Paul, when he comes to this conversation in Romans 6, he says, look... When you have been baptized, you have been sealed to Christ because you have, and the group around you has by faith received that promise that there is a way out. And because of your baptism, being baptized into Christ's death and raised to walk a new life, your past became Christ's past. Your past was taken by Jesus and it was killed. It died with him. And whatever that thing is that's still haunting you, it's dead. It's dead. And you can let it go. And you know what else? You're dead to it. It doesn't know you exist anymore. And it has no more authority over you. I I preached a sermon like this once at another church. And after the service, I had someone come up to me and say, there's this thing I did 40 years ago. And I think about it at least once a week. And it haunts me. And I haven't been able to let it go. I'm telling you, let it go. It's dead. You don't exist. Whatever that sin is that you're hanging on to, it doesn't have any hold over you anymore. You're dead to it. But not only has your past become Christ's past, your future has become Christ's future, or rather, Christ's future has become yours. He, Was resurrected, and Paul promises that we too will be resurrected into new life. That you can have confidence in the gospel. That as surely as Jesus was raised from the dead, you too will be raised from the dead, and there is no reason to be afraid. But of course, we live in this weird tension, don't we? We have this past that is over and dead and gone, and we have this future that is promised to us, but in between, it's kind of rough. And Paul says there that the life we have is actually the life of Christ. That we were raised as new creatures and we live to God. We were raised to God. He says in other parts of scripture that the life that we now live, we live by the power of Christ. Your past was taken by Jesus. It became his past and he killed it. Your future was given to you by Jesus. It is sure and you can be confident. And your present is being held securely by a living Jesus Christ, by the power of his Holy Spirit. Your present is secure. And so we live in the tension of this kind of reality, where we have all these promises, where we have been declared righteous, and yet we often don't feel very righteous. I never feel very righteous, to tell you the truth. Now I have some moments where I think, that was pretty good and then at that moment I immediately became unrighteous so whatever we've been declared righteous what Paul is asking of his hearers here is to actually live in that reality you have been definitively declared righteous because of the act of Jesus Christ believe it believe it you are righteous and yet The paradox is that you are not yet fully righteous. And we have to step into the reality of our God-given, Jesus-bought righteousness. Step into that reality and actually live like people who live in a different country than we used to. Because that thing no longer has power over us. And so Paul's point is, when you are using grace as an excuse to sin, the reality is you do not understand what grace is actually doing. That it has radically connected you to Jesus Christ for all of eternity. And you have been declared righteous and are being transformed. Now simply accept that truth. As Ethan is fond of saying, God saved you, now deal with it. (laughs) God saved you, now deal with it. Live accordingly. And I want to close with this thought. This idea that we're no longer slaves, but we're free. Augustine goes back to the old neighborhood and he sees the old girlfriend. And there's this accusing finger. Come back, Augie baby. (laughs) Come back. She doesn't have power over him anymore. That relationship you're in that needs needs to end, you think you need it? You, you think that somehow you're going to gain something from that, that because, you know, you have this hole in you that needs to be filled. That person doesn't actually have power over you anymore. The addictions you have, you think those things are going to make you happy. They're the old, they're the old you. The old you is dead and it ha- they have no more power over you. Maybe, maybe you, you have an addiction to food. You know, you, you're discouraged and you like to eat. Hey, man, when you're as big as me, what's another cheeseburger? Maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum and you think, you know, I I just need to look better. And so I'm going to starve myself because if I look better, people will like me and I'll feel better about myself. That's all the old self. You're free from all of that. You are accepted and loved by Jesus Christ as you are, and loved enough that God is determined not to leave you there. He is not just going to make you a quaint little cottage; He is turning you into a palace, and you are free to be who you are meant to be. And so, my request for us tonight is this: May the truth of Christ's graciousness demonstrated in His past, present, and future action for us may that sink deeply into our hearts and change our affections so that we love him all the more for what he has done for us. And as our affections change, out of that place will flow righteousness. That's my, that's my prayer for us tonight. And we ask these things in the name of the Father, in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.